This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Blessed is the one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Hi there, my name's Brad Koneman. I'm one of the pastors at Anchor Church, and it's a real privilege for me to be continuing our series in the Psalms called Selah, Songs in the Waiting. Well, gumption has to be one of my favorite cleaning products of all time. You got crayons on the wall from the kids, gumption will get it out. Beetroot stains on the kitchen bench, you're all sorted with gumption. Those burnt popcorn-y bits on the bottom of the saucepan that not even the toughest scourer will get out, give gumption a go. And I can imagine all of you rushing to the shops this week to get some gumption. This week when I sat down to write my message, I sat down and saw my beautiful white Apple keyboard on my desk in my bedroom because I'm working from home. And I saw that my youngest son, Blaze, had scribbled all over it with black pen. I'm like, oh no, how am I going to get this out? And I got a baby wipe trying to scrub it out and didn't do anything. Got the good old gumption out of the, under the sink. Just rubbed it on there and it was as good as new. It's such a satisfying feeling, isn't it? When you're able to remove a stain and make something clean. Last weekend, I was up in the Blue Mountains uh, doing a working bee on my brother's property. It was raining, it was muddy, and by the end of the day, I was soaking wet and covered in dirt. And it was such a nice feeling in the afternoon to go home and have a hot shower and just stand there under the, under the, under the water and wash all that dirt away. It's so satisfying to get clean, isn't it? But what about a stain that gumption can't remove? or dirt that a shower cannot wash away. How can you get clean when the dirt isn't on the outside, but on the inside? As we look at Psalm 51 today, we're looking at the dark reality of the stain of sin. And the Psalm confronts us with the question, how can I experience cleansing? The situation that the psalm was written into is very clear from the introduction to the psalm. If you have a look, it says that it's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
Now remember, this is King David. This is Israel's national hero, their king of kings, a man after God's own heart, whose sins have caught up with him, who's carrying around a heavy weight of guilt. And you can read the story for yourself in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. The army is away at war, and really David should probably be leading them, but he sent his commander Joab to lead the army, and David is at home. He's restless, he can't sleep, and so he goes up onto the roof in the night and he spies the beautiful Bathsheba bathing herself. And he's overcome with lust. He calls for her, he sleeps with her, and she conceives. And David tries to cover up his sin. He calls Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from the front line. And, you know, on the premise of getting a report back from the war and says, you know, go and enjoy yourself, go home, have a good time, sleep with your wife. But Uriah is a man of honor and integrity. And he refuses to do that while his men are sleeping in the fields and on the front lines of war. And so he goes and sleeps uh, with the servants in the courtyard. David's plan has failed. And so he sends Uriah back to the army with a sealed message to Joab, the commander, saying, put Uriah on the front line where the battle is fiercest and then pull back from him. And Joab does exactly that. And Uriah is killed. Effectively, David has ordered his murder. And David then proceeds to steal his wife. And he thinks he's got away with it. He thinks no one knows. He thinks he's covered up his sin. But of course, God knows we can't hear, we can't hide anything from God's sight. He sees what's done in the dark. He knows the skeletons in our closet. He knows the, the darkest and deepest depths of our hearts because nothing is hidden from his sight. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to David to uncover his sin. And when David's confronted with this reality of adultery and murder that he's tried to cover, cover up, He's weighed down with the burden of guilt and he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the backstory. And in Psalm 51, this psalm is really David's prayer of confession and a plea for cleansing. And it's a guide for us as a guide that will guide us to experience cleansing from our own sin as well. We're going to see that for us to experience cleansing from sin, that cleansing from sin requires the confession of sin. Cleansing from sin requires asking God for help. And cleansing from sin results in an inner renewal. So that's where we're going. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask for God's help. And then we'll work through the text of Psalm 51 together. Let's pray together. God, we ask that you would give us an honest assessment of ourselves today. Give us the courage to look at the darkness within. And we ask that you would meet us there with your cleansing grace and power. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's work through Psalm 51 together. First thing that we're going to see is that cleansing from sin requires the confession of sin. We're going to start in verses 3 to 6. In verse 3, David says this. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. David's confession of sin begins with an honest assessment of self. Before Nathan came to him, David was blind to his sin. He was deceiving himself, trying to cover it up. But now David faces 
the ugly reality of sin in his life. He owns it. He takes personal responsibility for what he's done. This verse asks us the question, do you see your sin or are you deceiving yourself? Confession of sin begins with an honest assessment of, of self. I know my transgressions. The confession of sin then moves on to an accurate assessment of the seriousness of sin. Take a look at verse 4. David says, Against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. David says that in the end, God is the offended party. Of course, he's sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and his nation. But David sees sin for what it is, which is ultimately an offence against God. David says that sin isn't measured by what society thinks is good and evil, but by what is evil in the sight of God. And far from belittling his sin, this statement actually heightens the seriousness and the gravity of sin. Because sin is ultimately an offence against God. And so have you accurately assessed the gravity of your sin? In verse 5, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David confesses that sin is not an anomaly in his otherwise perfect life. He's come to such an honest self-assessment that he's able to realize that there are deep patterns of selfishness that characterize his entire pattern of life. Cleansing from sin begins with confession of sin. And God wants us to take a look in the mirror for each of us and an honest assessment of ourselves, not just our outward behavior, but our inner life, our attitudes, our emotions, our motives. Now, for some of you, you don't need any convincing of the sin in your life. You're weighed down by guilt. You're just like David. I know my sin, God. It's always before me. But some of us are actually pretty good at deceiving ourselves. I think of myself, especially in my marriage. I, I am prone to getting so defensive, saying, I haven't done anything wrong. I make excuses for myself. I justify my behavior. And it's such a negative pattern of behavior in my marriage that is unhealthy and something that I need to change. And it means that I'm often blind to my sin and I deceive myself. The Apostle John writes that if we claim to be without sin, which is exactly what I do in my marriage, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And so this psalm, it invites us to make an accurate assessment of ourselves. So what are you hiding? What are the skeletons in your closet? Are you willing to courageously face the darkness within? Now, of course, I'm fully aware that talking about sin in our day and age is not PC. In fact, some would say it's damaging. The church gets such a bad rap for laying guilt and shame on people with all our talk about sin and hell and judgment. And of course, there's truth to this critique, isn't there? where the church has exacerbated shame and self-hate and all the terrible consequences that go along with that, rather than helping people to become free of that, we need to own that. We need to do better. 
But many psychologists would agree that there is such a thing as healthy guilt. Just like there's healthy anger and healthy fear, warning emotions that tell us that something is wrong, healthy guilt alerts us to our wrongdoing, that something needs to change in our lives. But the biblical writers never want us to stay there. They never want us to be weighed down with guilt. Guilt, healthy guilt, should lead us to confess our sin to God and to ask for cleansing. And that's exactly what we see here in this psalm and in David's life. His guilt over his sin leads him to confess his sin and to ask God for help. Cleansing from sin requires the confession of sin. Cleansing from sin requires asking God for help, which is what we're going to look at now in verses 1 and 2 and verses 7 to 9. So David's not making excuses anymore. He's not trying to prove his innocence. He knows he's helpless and without grounds for appeal. And so he cries out to God in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David's only hope and ours rests on God's mercy and love and compassion. Now imagine that one of my children drops my brand new iPhone 12 and it smashes on the screen, smashes on the floor. The screen's obliterated. Now justice would demand payback. I'm going to take that out of your pocket money for the next five years. Say goodbye to your pocket money, children. But mercy, it bends down to the child, it wipes away the debt and it embraces them. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, demanding payback and punishment. God bends down, wipes away the debt, and embraces us in mercy and love and compassion. Because of his mercy, God cleanses us. And we see this in David's, David's prayer in verses 1 and 2. David uses three different words to communicate his need for cleansing. Blot out wash away and cleanse. He then repeats those words, but inverts the order in verses seven to nine. So let's have a look at this. We'll get it up on the screen for you. So in verses one to two, he says, according to your great compassion, let's track these words, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then he repeats those words, but inverts the order in verses seven to nine. So watch this. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow, and blot out my iniquity. Three words for cleansing. Blot out, wash away, and cleanse. The theme is super clear, isn't it? Stained by sin, David knows that he needs to be cleansed. And this psalm asks us, how can I experience cleansing? Having a shower will not wash away your guilt. Sin doesn't stain our hands, but our hearts and our consciences. We need an inner cleansing that cannot be provided by gumption, as good as gumption is. And the good news of the Bible is that God provides this cleansing for anyone who asks for it, purifying us by the blood of Jesus. Just like that classic old hymn says, what can wash away my sin? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. What, a be- what beautiful words. God cleanses us from sin by the blood of Jesus. And when God cleans us, he does a proper good job. It's not like my dishwasher where you pull out the dishes and it's still got specks of last night's dinner on it. And when God cleanses us, all of our sin, which was black as soot, is taken away and we are now white as snow. There's no spot, no blemish remaining. If you're in Christ, if you're someone who has asked God for cleansing, you don't need to be weighed down by guilt anymore. Jesus has washed your stains away. You are pure and white and righteous in his sight. Guilt may be helpful in leading us to confession, but God doesn't want us to stay there. God wants us to have assurance and confidence that we are cleansed and to live in the freedom of his love. Now, if you're someone that is struggling with sin, that is feeling weighed down by guilt, even though you know Jesus has died for you and that God loves you, but you're just feeling weighed down by guilt and you're not free of it, we'd love to walk with you. I'd personally love to connect you connect with you and journey with you uh, towards healing and freedom. And so if you'd like to reach out to me, if you'd like me to help you to connect connect you with one of our pastoral care team, uh, you can email me, brad at anchorchurch.com.au, and I'd love to be in contact with you. I'd love to help you journey towards the freedom and cleansing that God gives us in Jesus. Well, we've seen that cleansing from sin requires confession of sin. We've seen that cleansing from sin requires asking God for help. And now finally, we see that cleansing from sin results in inner renewal. So let's have a look at verses 10 to 19 together. Having been cleansed of sin, according to God's mercy, David now prays for an inner renewal of his heart that will work itself out into a life of authentic worship. So in verse 10, he prays this. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In this beautiful prayer of renewal, David prays for four things. He prays for a pure heart, a heart that's no longer twisted by selfish motives, but that's devoted and pure, devoted to loving God and other people. He prays for a steadfast and willing spirit that we no longer give up when life gets hard, but we press on, we keep going, we persevere. He prays for the joy of salvation. And joy should be one of the chief marks of the Christian life, isn't it? We've been cleansed from sin. We've been set free from guilt and shame, and this should spark joy in our lives, shouldn't we? We've got so much to be grateful for. And finally, he prays for the presence of the Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, God's Spirit came upon individuals and was also taken away. If you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to the temple. But as followers of Jesus, Jesus now dwells within us by his Spirit. The New Testament writers say that We are God's temple. We don't need to go to some special building to meet with God because he lives within us. 
we abide in him because he abides in us. And so as Christians, we don't need to fear God's spirit being taken from us. We can enjoy the presence of God 24-7 because he lives within us. And when Jesus gives us his spirit, we're not only cleansed, but we're changed. We experience an inner renewal that produces new fruit in our lives. You can imagine having a car that has old, dirty oil in there and the car's running all clunky and there's all these issues that are happening with it. But when you change the car, when you change the oil in the car, it starts running better and all of those issues go away. It's the same kind of thing for the inner renewal. It's like getting new oil in our lives that produces a new way of life. And so do these things mark your life? Purity, perseverance, joy, abiding. They're the things that David prays for. And this inner renewal now works its way out into David's life, into a life of authentic worship. And in this this psalm, we see this in two ways for David. The first thing that we see is inner renewal leads to public proclamation. And the second is that inner renewal leads to true sacrifice. So in verses 13 to 15, inner renewal leads to public proclamation. David says this, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David's experience of God's mercy is not a private matter to be kept at home, but results in public proclamation of God's character and his action. Whenever you experience God's grace and you're filled with the joy of salvation, it explodes out of your life, doesn't it? You can't help but talk about the things that you love. So inner renewal results in public proclamation. But inner renewal also results in true sacrifice. So have a look at verses 16 to the end. David says this. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, it would be easy to read this and think, oh, wow, God hates sacrifice. God hates religion. He hates ritual. All he wants is worship from the heart, not empty religious observance. And there's half truth to that, isn't there? God does hate empty religion that doesn't have any heart in it. Jesus reserves his harshest criticisms for the Pharisees who simply do external religion but don't worship God from the heart. He calls them whitewashed tombs, that they look good on the outside but they're dead inside. And for us, it's we know from personal experience, don't we? We know that it's entirely possible for us to do all the externals right but to have a heart that is far from God. You can go to church. You can give money. You can read the Bible and pray every day. You can lead a gospel community. You can even pastor a church, but lack a true inner attitude of the heart that pleases God. We see here that God does want true worship from the heart. He wants to renew us inwardly through the confession of our sins and through asking for help and cleansing so that we might have a pure heart that worships him truly. But then what we go on to see in these next two verses is that this inner renewal should work itself out in our lives in true sacrifice, in outward forms of authentic worship. 
So have a look with me in verses 18 and 19. He's just said, I don't, you don't want sacrifice, but now look at what he says. He says, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper, build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then what? Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So what's going on here? He's just said no sacrifice, but now he's saying right sacrifices. Well, in this psalm, David doesn't completely reject sacrifice. What he wants is true sacrifice. That is the overflow of an authentic heart of worship to God. And this conclusion of the psalm really helps us to understand the dynamics of true biblical worship and spirituality. You see, God doesn't want empty religion without heart. God also doesn't want heart worship without external form. True biblical worship involves the inner renewal of the heart through confession and cleansing, which then overflows in a life of authentic worship and true sacrifice. You see, what gives the rituals of worship and sacrifice meaning is the inner renewal from which they flow. And for us, we could apply this principle to any form of external worship that we, that we share together. Singing, the Lord's Supper, going to church, reading the Bible, prayer and fasting, giving, serving. God doesn't want us to do these things begrudgingly out of duty or obligation. He hates that. But he doesn't want us to give up these practices either. God wants us to embrace these practices as key forms of worship that are fueled by a heart of love and joy. And so in this psalm, right at the conclusion of this, we see the dynamics of true biblical spirituality. As David, Israel's king, Israel's worship leader, experiences an inner renewal of confession and cleansing that overflows into external forms of worship, public proclamation and true sacrifice. Well, we have looked at some heavy and dark themes today. Sin and guilt. But that's exactly what the Psalms do. The Psalms present us with the whole range of human emotions that we experience on life's pilgrimage, and they give us words to express them back to God. The question that we've been confronted with today is, how can I experience cleansing? And we've seen that cleansing from sin requires the confession of sin, requires asking God for help, and results in the inner renewal of the heart that overflows into a life of authentic worship. If you're a Christian, then this is your prayer of confession and cleansing to God, and this is your story. You were once stained by sin, but you've been washed as white as snow. You don't need to walk around anymore with the burden of guilt and shame hanging around your neck. God knows you. God loves you. And God has made you clean. Let's pray together. God of mercy, we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your ways. Please cleanse us. Wash us by Jesus' blood. Renew us by your spirit to live a life of authentic worship. In Jesus' name, amen.